This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. First, let's start with back to school. My guest is liberal MLA Dan Davies. He is the official opposition education critic. Dan, thanks for coming on again. Hi, good morning, Mike. Okay, can you give me your take on the back to school plan? I know you guys have been very critical about it. What, what, is, what are your concerns this week as, as kids head back to class? Well, the concerns are, are pretty much the same that they've been, uh, you know, somewhat since the start of this. Uh, you know, we've, we've heard the government uh, continues to say that they've been working on the back-to-school plan since classes were suspended in March. And then, of course, uh, July 29th, uh, after some pressure to, to move the date up a little bit earlier, uh, July 29th, everybody was expecting to see a, a robust plan that, uh, you know, would set districts uh, down the path of getting schools ready for or whatever that might look like. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, that kind of fell flat in its face. Uh, you know, there, there, there was very little plan actually given on July 29th. Um, it was basically kick the can down the road and pass the buck entirely to school districts, uh, which basically, you know, in, in our opinion was, uh, you know, the government trying to avoid, first of all, I think all responsibility uh, and accountability, uh, didn't really show any leadership from uh, Minister Fleming uh, to, to come forward with it. And, you know, put, in, and, and again, we, you know, I've, I've been in touch with uh, school districts and teachers across, uh, across the province and parents, putting an, an enormous amount of pressure on an already uh, taxed. Uh, you what, know, let me let me ask uh, you this. Let me, let me ask you this. What are your specific concerns about the plan? Well, you know, the, I think the biggest thing that we are hearing, and uh, you know, this is even myself as a parent of, of two school age kids as well, yeah. uh, that there is no option. Uh, there's no directed option for distributed learning or for virtual. Uh, sorry, a virtual option, and this is one thing that we've been hearing over and over again. Now, the government, the government just the government just announced a whole bunch of money to the districts to to help pay for distance learning if if parents want it. That's right. So, part of the two hundred and forty two million dollars that we got from the federal government, uh, you know, the school uh, the the ministry did say it could be used for, and it listed off a, a bunch of items. Now, not all school districts are offering this. And I, I think this is what we're going to start seeing as a problem, is this disparity that is forming between school districts around the province. Some are offering that option, others are not. And, uh, you know, this, this is where it starts to become, well, why <clears throat> who maybe live up in, in Fort Nelson or uh, over in, in, in Stewart or down in Vancouver, <laughs> excuse me, uh, not have the same options as, you know, uh, as uh, the school district neighboring them. And, and this is where... There needed to be some leadership shown where, you know, here are the goalposts that you need to meet as a school district. Now you can go forward. Let, and, let me, and we never saw those goalposts at the start. Let me, let me play this for you. The, the plan has been approved by the province's provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and, and here she is talking about it. Recognizing how important it is for our children across the board to get the education plus the social interaction of the school setting that they need right now. And we know that. We've seen the data from here and from around the world, the negative impacts that have happened um, with schools closing. Okay, she's making the point that we got to get the schools open. We've got to get our kids back in class. 
it's if you have kids at home, <laughs> there's negative health impacts on them as well. We've got to get the schools open. Mm-hmm. She has approved this plan. So are, are you questioning so, her judgment here as, as so, in approving so this plan? Come on. I, I have two kids. I, there's nothing more than I want for my two kids to be in a classroom learning. Right. There's nothing more than I want to see them socializing. We all recognize that that is critical. However, safety has got to be number one. And, and when we start, <clears throat> you know, when we start looking about, you know, it, the anxiety is sky high for many parents across the province, especially those families that have, you know, a compromised immunity issue, whether it's the child or someone at home or they're caretaking, a, you know, a grandparent in their home, which is many, many families across the province that, you know, they, they don't have the option to make sure that their concerns are looked after. You know, we've been hearing from the about, uh, you know, keep your bubble small social distancer, this physical distancing piece. You know, we, we even saw, you know, the, the, the provincial government came out with a plan, you know, with Bonnie Henry in a commercial uh, a, a week ago about, you know, six kids in a classroom. Well, why do you have six kids in a classroom? Well, you know, we, we, we had to do it safely so we, you know, we could keep our, our physical distancing. Well, well, she said, well hang on a second. Hang on a, hang on are, a second. She said, you know, to the parents. Hang on a sec. She said there were more than six kids in the classroom. Maybe you only saw six kids in some of the commercial, the shots, the TV shots in the commercial. She also said there was a whole whole complement of staff and parents and, and production people in the room, and that's why they did. I thought that was a reasonably good ad that was tr- that is trying to reassure reassure kids as they go back to class during a, a kind of a, a, a concerning time. So are you, are know, you, question, and, and are you questioning are you questioning her judgment in doing that commercial? No, I'm questioning the government and how they are proceeding right. with this. And if we look at that commercial, it's just, an, you know, it, it, that is not the reality of a classroom. I taught in a classroom for 13 years in public school. That is not the reality of a classroom. That is likely not going to be the reality of a classroom moving forward. So, you know, these, these false portrayals of, hey, this is what it's going to look like. I mean, it's nothing different than the, the, the botched uh, grade 12 exams last week that the government tried to cover up with a, yeah. using government funds uh, uh, to falsely advertise that everything's wonderful and ducky. Uh, you know, this is just another okay. uh, another goof-up by the Ministry of Education and the minister, I should say, that, uh, you know, he, he's not, he needs to be held accountable for a lot of this stuff that's moving on, and, okay. and he's not taking responsibility. Okay, speaking of liberal education critic Dan Davies, your leader, Andrew Wilkinson, is on the record calling for a full restart of the of the school system. He wanted every kid... Back in school, he wanted every kid getting an education again, full restart. What is your solution? I mean, rather than calling, you know, saying the minister screwed up or this was a bad, com- this was a bad commercial that they did. What is your precise solution to make this work better? Well, to make number one, we got to make sure that there is options for parents out there regarding a hybrid thing. They, they also need to be confirmed if they are going to do a distributed learning. Uh, they need to make sure that those spaces in a brick-and-mortar school are safe for them, you know, if things change in a, in, in a month and, or, or two months' time. That is a huge concern that, you know, their, their child yeah. might not have a spot later on. So I, I think the distributed learning piece is something that is absolutely essential to have in there. Uh, you know, I, I have a lot of confidence in our school districts. They have been working, and I know that they've been working night and day to come out with these plans for, for each of the school districts, and I thank them, I thank teachers that are back in the classroom today but so much of this 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 anxiety didn't have to happen if the government had come up with a clear plan for school districts to move forward and and the biggest piece that we see is is that piece and 
people. I'm hosting a town hall tomorrow night. Uh, you can uh, find it on, on uh, our BC Liberal Caucus website. Yeah. We want to hear from parents. We want to hear from teachers. What things look like in your districts and how, okay. you know, how are you feeling? Are you confident going back to the classroom? All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the spending palooza going on here at the federal level with the Justin Trudeau government. Now, look, everybody knew during this pandemic, the government had to spend big money to keep the economy afloat and to help people. Lives were displaced. They lost their job during the COVID-19 pandemic. But man, oh man, you take a look at some of the money uh, that has gone out the door here during this pandemic. It's just astonishing. Uh, billions of dollars here out the door. And who knows, it could be even more money going forward. There is a throne speech coming up later this month. A lot of people interested in what the government's agenda will be, especially when it comes to spending at the federal level. Is this sustainable? What about the impact on the economy? What about the impact on the budget? Let's talk about these issues now with my guest, John Iveson, the very fine columnist at the National Post. I highly recommend his column on this, which I just tweeted out for you. John, thanks a lot for coming on. No problem, Mike. Um, when is the throne speech? Later this month, right? 23rd. Okay, what are people saying? What are, you, what are your sources telling you about the level of spending that's going on in Ottawa right now? Well, after the throne speech, there will be some form of economic update or a mini-budget or however they term it. Um, and that will be the, the sort of meat on the bones. But the bones will be uh, described in the throne speech. The concern, I think, for, for a number of people, even people who have been in favour of deficit spending, people like David Dodge, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, is that we brought in a lot of temporary spending, as you mentioned, to, to combat COVID. That right. set the, the deficit skyrocketing to $343 billion in the, in the, the snapshot in July. Uh, it's grown since then because we know that they're going to extend the CERB for another year. It's not going to be called the CERB, it'll be called the Canada Recovery Benefit, but that's another $22 billion for that, plus add-ons. So you're getting close to $400 billion already. It sounds like, from what I'm hearing in Ottawa, that the government has decided, let's go big or go home. You know, when we're at that level of spending, who's going to notice if we add a few billion more? And, and from what I gather, it could be up to $100 billion more dollars added to the national debt in this throne speech economic update. It really is incredible. Uh, we've never seen anything like this, of course. You got the budget deficit projected to swell by around a, a thousand percent higher than what had been expected pre-COVID. You got the accumulated debt of the country uh, set to eclipse one trillion dollars for the first time. And there just doesn't seem to be any kind of end in sight to the spending that's that's going on like i said at the start john even the conservatives were saying like yeah you got to spend money at at the start of this pandemic but are you picking up concerns from where you are in ottawa uh, uh, let's say among the bureaucracy or the staffers there that this is maybe getting a little out of control yeah i've never heard the amount of disquiet from the bureaucracy side you know people reaching out to advocacy groups to to say look you've got to you've got to stop these guys you know, the, the government seems to think that because, you know, in the, in the mid-1990s, we had interest rates that were soaring, you know, 20%, and it was costing us 36 cents out of every dollar to service that debt. You know, that right. number is now 9%. Interest rates are growing slower than the growth rate in the economy. And, and the government seems to think, well, it doesn't really matter what level you take the debt to, as long as the servicing costs are kept low. 
Um, you know, and I think that there's an element of truth to that. If we're not spending huge amounts of money on servicing the debt, then who, you know, who cares what it is? But, but obviously that's borrowed money. And all you're doing is redistributing borrowed money, and at some point it has to be paid back. And, you know, the economists who are telling the government that this is okay to do this, look down the road and say, well, you know, in five years we won't be spending anything more than we're spending now on servicing that debt because the interest rates are growing slower than the economy. But what about 15 years down the road, 20 years down the road, when our kids and grandkids are having to somehow pay this money back because interest rates have gone up to where they were in the mid-90s. Yeah. So it's, it's really a, a, an intergenerational problem, I think, and it's kind of ironic that it's coming from a government which professes to be so worried about the next generation that it's, it's taking some pretty drastic steps on the, the uh, environment front, you know, costing a, lo- a lot of money now to help the next generation. Well, on the, on the fiscal side, they're doing the exact opposite. Yeah, I don't think anyone would argue that we had to we had to spend uh, to manage this pandemic. I think everyone was on board with that. I, I guess in in some cases, just the scale of what is going on in this country in terms of the spending. Like if you if you compare how much Canada has spent in COVID relief on a percentage of GDP, for example, and then th- compare that to other developed countries that are similar to Canada, say in the European Union, like France or the UK, uh, Italy, even Italy, where it was sort of ground zero of the pandemic at the start of it. Uh, we're spending more. I mean, we are spending more in Canada as an overall percentage of our GDP. And a lot of it has been on programs that some people are starting to argue that maybe the money went to people who don't necessarily deserve it. Like, you know, kids who are collecting the CERB for months, uh, students who live in ho- very well-to-do homes with a, a family income of over $100,000. Did they really need that right. money? So there are questions well, I mean, being asked like that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the, the 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 classic example of that was the money that was given to seniors. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a it was a blind, uh, a standard check across everybody, regardless of income. And a lot of people turned around and said, "Look, I don't need an extra five hundred dollars. Why why not use yeah. it to, to to people who who actually need this money?" And they could have done that. They could have targeted the people who get guaranteed income supplement, which is less than eighteen thousand dollars income. Right. And they could have targeted poor seniors, but they didn't. They gave it to everybody because I think this is. As, well, obviously, politics is always about winning an election, but I think this, this, these moves are geared to winning an election, and mm. some of them have not been costed or thought through properly. The one big one which looks like it's going to come down is essentially a universal basic income. Yes. And what it means is that the, the, the CERB, or what will become the Canada Recovery Benefit, will be extended in perpetuity. And that means that you can not work and receive $20,000 in income, which might yeah. sound like a good idea, but I think sooner or later we would find nobody's going to go to a minimum wage job which where you earn $27,000 if you can earn $20,000 at home and maybe work a part-time job and top that up to up to $38,000 before you yeah. see any of that money clawed back by the government. Yeah, no, that's so, incredible. You know, like Everybody now is familiar with the CERB, but I think a lot more people are going to become familiar with this new acronym, the CRB. Um, or as you mentioned, the Canada Recovery Benefit, which will replace the CERB. And yeah, that's a lot more money out than $22 billion just over the next year. Um, do you think that uh, we've got a new finance minister here, Christy Freeland, who had, had uh, replaced the uh, Bill Morneau. How much significance do you place on that, Trudeau bringing in a different finance minister as we go forward here? Yeah, I think that that's, that's pretty key here because I think Bill Morneau said, I don't want to do that, yeah. uh, extend the CERB another year. And I think that was one of the key reasons that uh, the key policy differences that uh, meant he, he couldn't, it wasn't tenable for him to stay. 
I think uh, Miss Freeland is ideologically uh, aligned with this idea of a universal basic income. Her, she wrote a book called Plutocrats, which was essentially about closing the, the income gap between um, the, the super rich and, and everybody else. You know, maybe that's a noble goal, but is this the way to do it? Right. It remains to be seen whether they do follow through with, with some form of universal basic income. We know they're going to take action in areas like long-term care. We know they're going to take action in terms in, in areas like daycare. Daycare may be a defendable thing to do because it might help women get back in the workforce and be a productive investment, something that will actually save us money in the long term. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about supercar rallies on the Sea to Sky Highway now. Who even knew that supercar rallies were a thing in our province? I don't I didn't know about this. This is the first time I'd heard about supercar rallies in BC. Lamborghinis, Ferraris, Maseratis, and they were participating on Saturday in the Hublot Diamond Rally Charity Challenge. So all these high-end supercars getting together for a rally from going from Vancouver to the Pemberton Airport, ending up in Whistler. It did not go according to plan on the Sea to Sky on, on Saturday afternoon when a Lamborghini got cracked up in a crash. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Julia Foy. The Hublot Diamond Rally, which runs from Vancouver to Pemberton, is a dream come true for high-end car enthusiasts. Super amped about being able to race supercars. Like Adam Blender, who races and critiques vehicles on his Van City Audi YouTube channel. I was participating in the Hublot Diamond Rally. It's the first time I've attended the event. The main purpose of attending the rally was to generate funds for the BCSBCA as it is a charity event. But Saturday's drive was cut short after a three-car accident shut down the Sea to Sky Highway near Daisy Lake. We ended up coming to a stop. We were there for three and a half hours, traffic just sitting there. Six people were injured, including two young children, one of which was airlifted to Children's Hospital. Police say a Land Rover, a Toyota crossover, and a Lamborghini were involved in the crash. Whistler RCMP released in a statement, I can confirm the silver Lamborghini traveling north was part of the Diamond Hublot rally. We are investigating both the drivers of the Range Rover and the Lamborghini for dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. We have 150 plus cars. We reached out to Diamond Rally President Craig Stowe, but we didn't get a response to our request for comment. 
Splendor says the Hublot Diamond Rally was originally booked for early May, not the Labor Day weekend, which ICBC calls one of the deadliest times for car crashes. But COVID-19 safety concerns caused the rally to be postponed several times. Spent a lot of time, money and effort to raise money and get the car prepped and get up there and for something terrible like this to happen uh, was a horrible experience for everyone involved. Thank you for that report there from Global News there on the uh, Lamborghini getting cracked up on the Sea to Sky Highway on Saturday afternoon, part of the Hublot Diamond Supercar Rally. Uh, they they do say, like, look, this is for charity, okay? This is why they do this. They want to get, I'm checking out their website right now, the Vancouver Food Bank, uh, the Special Olympics, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. This is why they say they're doing it, to get all these guys get together with their Lamborghinis and their Ferraris, and they raise money for, for good causes. But, man, oh, man, we're seeing more and more of these uh, supercars get cracked up and crashes here. A statement from the RCMP in Whistler. I'm just taking a look at that right now. We've seen far too much tragedy on the Sea to Sky Highway to last us all a lifetime. We can only implore people in the area slow down and i guess that's the problem when you have a supercar rally these cars are built for speed let's check in now with paul doroshenko he's a vancouver criminal lawyer he's with the acumen law corporation i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show hi paul nice to talk to you mike how are you doing today i'm doing just great thanks a lot for coming on paul appreciate it what do you think of this story what are your thoughts well i mean we've got this long history on this highway of uh, bad accidents happening as a result of people driving dangerously. And, you know, yeah. here again, we've got the police uh, investigating it. And, of course, the police know that this rally goes on uh, every year. They hand out uh, tons and tons of excessive speeding tickets and and speeding tickets to these cars on their way to the rally and, and departing from the rally. Uh, and here we are, people, you know, using our roads and highways as a racetrack. And it's pretty offensive. Uh, I'm, you know, I'd like to know uh, if the children were in the Toyota. I've sort of assumed that they were. Uh, yeah, but again, yeah. you know, we, we, we've got these cars that are designed to go on the Autobahn at 240 kilometers an hour. Uh, and we sell them in Vancouver. And Vancouver is one of the best markets in the world for Ferraris and Lamborghinis. Uh, and, you know, the highest speed limit we've got in the province is 120 kilometers an hour. You can't lawfully drive that car uh, you know, any faster than you can drive a, uh, you know, a, a base model Hyundai. Okay, I'm, t- I'm told, taking a look at some of the news reports on this, it's very disturbing that two children were injured in this crash and that they are in stable condition in hospital, and certainly we hope for their f- full recovery for, for everybody that's been injured here. But, man, oh, man, I mean, I, I mean, there's, I guess there's two ways to look at this. You could say that this should be banned, or on the other hand, these are legal cars that people are allowed to own, and why shouldn't they be allowed to have a rally to raise money for charity? What do you think? Well, I mean, the charity here seems to be the thing to justify driving your car really fast. Uh, I can't knock them for wanting to go onto something that is really a racetrack and wanting to drive their cars fast. i got no problem with that, and I don't think many people would have a problem with that. Uh, we've decided that we're going to let people purchase these vehicles and drive them on the road. Uh, and I'll tell you, when you, you know, I, I, driven a Lamborghini at one point. I never got it out of second gear. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're driving the thing and you're thinking to yourself that, uh, you know, you never actually get a chance to wind it up. Yeah. Uh, you get on the Sea to Sky Highway and there's everybody else on the road is at risk. And, and it is, you know, the police are investigating this for dangerous driving. Lots right. of people over the years have been convicted of dangerous driving, driving on that highway. Uh, we've just now got the Supreme Court of Canada has said that you know, speed alone can be dangerous driving. 
Uh, and I'm uh, I'm expecting more and more people to be charged with dangerous driving for speeding, for excessive speeding uh, in this province. We've seen it in Vancouver now. The police are doing that. Okay, I'm, che- I'm, I'm checking out the reaction on this story on- online right right now, Paul, and, and it's interesting. Like, it's like split opinion here. So I, I'm looking at some tweets I'm receiving from Greg, for example, who says, "100% these type of events should be banned. Their insurance should be increased dramatically, and it should be prohibitively expensive to own one of these supercars." Well, I don't know about that. Well, here's another one. Ian says to me, come on, ban these things? Just because you don't have one doesn't mean they should not be allowed to enjoy theirs. The problem is the mentality of some people who don't take safety seriously. It's not the car. It's the driver. Your thoughts, Paul? Well, the thing is, the vast majority of the cars that are out there can go really fast, right? You can buy a uh uh, base model Mercedes sedan, and that thing can go 240 kilometers an hour. Uh, you don't see that many accidents with those types of cars, as you see with uh, guys driving with Lamborghinis. Our insurance is paying for that uh, Lamborghini and that Range Rover unless they're convicted of a criminal offense. Uh, you know, remember the BC Liberals said years ago that they were no longer going to uh, have ICBC provide insurance for these supercars. I don't think that yeah, ever right. went through in the end. I think they backed down from that, and uh, it was just an announcement probably to, uh, in the hopes of improving their election uh, right. results. But, um, you know, you can understand people want these cars. You can see that they desire them. They're, you know, they're impressive pieces of technology, uh, and a lot of people get a lot of pleasure out of driving. The problem is that, you know, there's these uh, significant... Uh, number of cases we see where people are using these, you know, our highways as a racetrack. Well, yeah, I mean, because these cars are designed to go super fast. I mean, they just got hundreds of horsepower, and they can, and their top speed is just is just massively high speed. So, yeah, what are you going to do? Drive this thing down the sea to sky in like second gear? I mean, come on, guys who got a Lamborghini, if, like you said, they want to wind wind it up. Um, as, as the police investigation continues here. Uh, did you say it was? Is it dangerous driving? Is that what the investigation's focused on? Do you think? They, well, they've said the the uh, RCMP have come out and said they're investigating the driver of the Range Rover and the driver of the Lamborghini for dangerous driving, dangerous, driving. dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. So, what what is the potential know, uh, penalty for that? Well, it's a minimum one year driving prohibition if you're convicted. Uh, most people end up with a criminal record if the facts are really minor. That you know the driving is really not very serious, then it can end up, uh, you can end up with a discharge for it, so no criminal record. But most people who are convicted of uh, dangerous driving end up with a driving prohibition, a criminal record, uh, and either a fine or, uh, you know, something more serious than that. You can go to jail. You know, How about you exce- excessive speeding? Excessive speeding is a fine and uh, a seven-day vehicle impound, um, and the police can issue that ticket. It's, uh, it's a serious one, although it's only three demerits. It automatically triggers driver risk premium, so your insurance goes way up as a consequence. So you get an excessive speeding. If you get two, an excessive and another ticket, basically in an 18-month period, you're going to lose your license for a while, typically about four months. Okay, uh, I you... see the superintendent of motor vehicles will send you a notice of prohibition, pull your license. Okay, maybe you're the the wrong guy to ask this question because I'm sure you've you've probably defended some people on excessive speeding charges. I'm sure in your career, dozens of them. Yeah, it's one thought... of my favorite things to defend <laughs> because it's very hard for the police to do everything correctly. Okay, uh, so in that case, though, do, do you think the penalties are adequate? For, I don't uh, think it's an issue of the penalties. So think about who gets excessive speeding. It's not usually these guys in the Ferraris. I mean, I've talked to some officers who say that, you know, they just drive an unmarked car behind the Lamborghini and just wait. 
Um, the uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just a, you, you only got to drive about ten blocks before you know they'll put their foot down. Right. Um, but the uh, no, I mean, most of the time it's the uh, it's the person in the Honda Civic who uh, has to get somewhere driving you know their courier, or they it's the person in the minivan who goes from the uh, the hundred zone to the eighty zone, misses the sign, and they're already going twenty kilometers over the speed limit. I mean, yeah. the the vast majority of the people who I see who get excessive speeding tickets are not driving these high-end cars. Uh, they're not, you know, they're regular people who work regular jobs and who are listening to your program right now and think that they're never going to get one. And they get one, and it's a huge hit for them because they've got yeah. the fine. Uh, they, you know, if they get another ticket, they're facing a driving prohibition, which is crushing if you've got to drop your kids off at school and, and then go deal with your parents and it's a pandemic. Um, and then the insurance consequences, it's harsh. All right, welcome back. My guest, Paul Doroshenko, Acumen Law, talking about supercar rallies on the sea to sky after that Lamborghini accident on Saturday. Lots of calls. Let's go right to them. Tom and Kamloops, hi. Hi, Mike. Um, hi. Uh, I've participated in rallies like in my younger years. Like, I had a classic British car. The way yeah. we did some of ours was actually it was the best time, but based on who could stay the closest to the speed limit. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, you know, if it took you, I don't know, two hours to get from Vancouver to Whistler, um, based on obeying the, the speed limit laws, it was how close can you be to the most, like, the best possible okay. time. What kind of car it did you have? speeding at all. I had a Triumph uh, Spitfire. Okay, well, they're not, they're not fast. Those are, those are cool cars, but they're not super fast, though, right? True, true enough, but, yeah. uh, you know, these guys are doing it for charity, um, yeah. Why would a charity want to sponsor an event that is breaking the law? Well, yeah. Well, they they say they they don't encourage people to break the law. Obviously, they're not saying that we're doing this to speed. So they encourage participants to to not speed. But I guess when you get behind the wheel of a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, uh, how do you almost? It's almost I don't know. How do you not speed? I mean, if you're if you're driving a little British four banger like a Spitfire Triumph Spitfire, I don't think you less chance you're going to go crazy than uh, compared to a Lamborghini. Let me go to Greg in Vancouver. Hey, Greg. Uh, Mike, last summer yep. I was driving uh, this Hope Princeton last June, and yep. uh, I had a dozen Ferraris pass me at 130 to 140 miles an hour. Wow! Wow! It was it was scary yeah. to be honest. I was driving a brand new Subaru, and I thought I could make a little headway. They just—it was unbelievable. And there's actually road work further up on the road, so I don't know how they all stopped. To be wow. honest. Wow. Okay, Paul, what do you think of that? Uh, well, this happens, right? And yeah. the police can't be everywhere at every time. And if you do see uh, people driving in a manner that's dangerous, you can phone the police. Dangerous driving is a crime. If you think it's dangerous driving, you can phone the police. Yeah. I can tell you, I had a Triumph Spitfire up to 90 miles an hour when I was 17 years old. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was dangerous. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Uh, Wayne and Coquitlam. Hi, Wayne. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Hey, Mike, Good. this is a witch hunt. I've got uh, CTS and an Escalade. These cars are super fast now. My buddies all own Lambos and Ferraris. They're responsible people. Matter of fact, on Sunday, I was with my friend McGill. And listen, uh, they're responsible people. They're donating their time to these rallies. I think you just got envious, jealous people. I also have a 65 Nova SS all beefed up. 
Now, yeah. are they going to be coming after us when we have rallies on the weekends, as oh. you know, up in Langley, whatever? Is that yeah. next? Are they coming after us? I just think you've got jealous people. These are ex-people that are professionals that have put in hard work to get to their position to own these type of vehicles. They're very responsible, Mike. Okay, You're Wayne, sending okay. out the wrong message. Okay, man, thanks for the call. Okay, Paul, first they come well, for the Lamborghini. Then sure. Well, they, then they're coming for your Mustang. On September sixth, got a Ferrari going 189 kilometers an hour in an 80 zone, according to their their Twitter feed. Um, so not everybody's responsible, and you can't control everybody. And I don't think anybody's coming after anyone. Uh, you know, I think the question is, we've got an accident here, a collision where a Lamborghini was damaged, a uh, uh, Range Rover was damaged. The police are investigating for dangerous driving, and and there's injuries. There's two children on the highway, and this yeah. we see it over and over. I mean, it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, there's lots of drivers out there who are responsible drivers. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, nobody's painting everybody with the big brush. Uh, you're not going to see a circumstance where you can ban a car rally. Uh, I'm surprised that the SPCA wants to be associated with this particular car rally, but there's a lot of people yeah. who enjoy it. And, we, you know, we're a sure. free society, a pluralist society. Uh, you're entitled to do it. If well, you're allowed to be rich, to right? Yeah. You're allowed to be rich. You're allowed to have a Lamborghini. You're allowed to have a yacht. Okay, like that's that's not going to change. Shelley in South Surrey. I'm just laughing at that last guy. Apparently, he hasn't been reading the papers with all the money launderers in the in, uh, in the country and in the province. But um, I just wanted to say, I think a big part of the problem is um, the two tiered nature of the fines that we have. Um, Two hundred and fifty dollars for these guys. It's nothing. It, we should be doing like they do in Finland, where they have um, the fines are relative to your wealth, your income, oh. and the value of the car. Okay, then what do you we think of that? Okay, Paul, thank you for the call. 30 seconds, Paul. You got a lot of bureaucracy to investigate everybody's income to try and turn it out. I mean, yeah. the uh, the west side of Vancouver, the average income declared is like $22,000 a year. Um, so good luck with that one. There's lots of people who claim that they have no income and file no income tax. I don't know how you're going to figure that one out. Paul, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about TikTok now, the popular video sharing smartphone app, especially popular with young people. And this is a disturbing story, in my opinion. TikTok now is struggling to take down a widely shared video uh, showing a suicide. And the video has also popped up on other social media sites. CKNW uh, contributor John Jang joins me now. He's been looking into this story. Hey, John. Uh, good morning, Mike, and I think you're absolutely right. A very disturbing video that the uh, social media developer TikTok is struggling with right now, and parents sort of reeling as they're trying to get their kids to uh, not watch it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a terrible situation. Very, very disturbing thought there, and a lot of people reporting they've been traumatized if they've run across this, this mm -hmm. video. So I know you talked to uh, Jesse Miller, right? He's like a social media expert. What did he tell you? Yeah, Jesse Milner with uh, MediatedReality.com. And first, he clarified what the video is and how it even showed up on TikTok in the first place. Okay. Yeah, a couple of points just to clarify for listeners. Uh, the, the gentleman in question, um, you know, a veteran, a person going through distress, he was a, a streamer. So he spent time online where people would watch whatever he was doing, whether it be playing a video game or social commentary. Uh, commentary. Um, and he was live streaming on both Facebook and a streaming platform when he took his life. Uh, the video itself has gone viral in a number of sub-communities online. Uh, most social media platforms would never allow this, this content to be there as a hosted piece. 
But like incidents before where we've seen mass murder uh, being streamed live on Facebook, um, it's hard to um, mitigate the risks of what people will do in real time. Now, the fact that this is on TikTok is more about a culture of Internet users. Those individuals are taking a snippet of the video, which is the most graphic piece, and putting that online in TikTok videos. So TikTok itself, the algorithm cannot identify anything different from a person who is dancing to a person who's just sitting there. And the issue now more is about the Internet community. Now, when it comes to parents, uh, I've seen some really bad advice about this video. Some some platforms and advocates are saying, uh, tell your kids that TikTok is down for a couple of days, which is absolute garbage. Um, don't try and, and sugarcoat it. Talk to your children about extreme content and get them to understand that it, it's a safe place in the family home to talk about anything they see online, whether it be an extreme graphic suicide or at the end of the day, a person reaching out to them and, and making uh, un unwanted commentary. Uh, the hard part here is that TikTok, obviously, to your point, has got a bit of a bad rap with the United States trying to uh, censor parts of it with this, uh, this political ideology. But the reality being here is TikTok, like any platform, can have explicit content and parents need, be, need to be prepared to talk. <clears throat> okay, I think it's disgusting anyone would, would share a video like that on, on mm -hmm. any social media platform, John. I think that's really disturbing. And what, what do you think? What does Jesse say that parents uh, need to do with their kids here? Yeah, I'm with you, Mike. Uh, Jesse's suggestion yeah. is that instead of parents just banning the app altogether from their kids, uh, it's to be honest and upfront about the nature of the internet and the dangers that uh, still very much exist today. Yeah, justify your distrust. Um, you know, I, I'd say the same thing about Facebook. Just because Facebook is based in the United States compared to TikTok having a, uh, um, a parent company in China does not make it more or less unsafe than any other social media platform. Um, the bigger issue I have when it comes to parents and kids is that for some reason parents justify um, uh, one platform as safer than the other because for some reason they believe that that content is not available. There's pornography on Instagram. There's pornography on Facebook. There's extreme content on TikTok. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it is the Internet. And the Internet is a wide open playground where anybody and everybody can come together with anything. Um, but realistically here, when parents are saying, well, I don't trust TikTok because I heard that, you know, this company uh, is sharing information, all of those companies do. That's the reason that those companies are in business, to make money. Um, and to be fair, when there is more scrutiny, the companies are usually better at bringing some information forward. And TikTok this year has seen a lot of scrutiny, and they're being a little bit more open than what we're seeing with Facebook right now when it comes to certain world uh, conflicts. Okay. Well, despite that, I didn't have a great opinion of TikTok at the start of this, and now mm -hmm. this is uh, this is further sort of make, reinforcing my doubts about it. But um, yeah, this is a tough one for parents, John. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not a parent myself, Mike. I know you are. I'm 30 yeah. years old, and I feel like I'm too old to use TikTok. So I asked Jesse, what can parents do to stay on top of the trends with social media? It's always changing after all, and make it easier for them to understand what their kids are using. Yeah, and parents don't necessarily have to stay on top of the trends. They have to be able to talk to their kids. And, and you, know, you know, you and I are separated by 10 years, and I'm 40 years old, you're 30. Um, I feel comfortable in the space no matter the platform because I have a good idea of how individuals will use the Internet. So 10 years ago, we were having this in conversation about explicit content on Snapchat. Ten years prior, it was that kind of cusp of uh, should MySpace be regulated and what happens with all this uh, horrible stuff we're seeing on Facebook. 
um, the platforms will change. Your children will grow. What parents need to understand is that their kids live in an entirely different world than most of us grew up in, in that 25 plus demographic where you can Google everything. There is no lying to your kids, hoping they're never going to figure something out. And at the end of the day, you know, back to that point of um, that one article that highlighted, tell your children that TikTok is down, they'll, they'll, they, they will believe you. Um, you can't lie to children in a connected world. They can Google anything and they can call you out on your BS. So when it comes to talking to your children, be the safest place to talk to them about any kind of issues or concerns. And if you feel as a parent, you can't, uh, maybe your child needs a different trusted adult that they can talk to. And, and that trusted adult has to be somebody that the family feels comfortable with. But at the end of the day, kids will talk to adults if they feel uncomfortable about something. Hopefully it's the person that you and your family feel is going to give the best advice. And in my family, we have that for our kids. Um, it's a, it's a family member of mine who I very much trust and know that that person will keep my kids on good path. So why not allow those family members in, in your circle? to be able to give some voice and reason to content because there's so much online that um, at the end of the day, if you're not talking to your kids about this, they will eventually talk to somebody and hopefully it's somebody that you and your family can trust. All right. Well, I, th- I think I'm capable of talking to my own kids about about these issues. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe some parents aren't. But uh, let me ta- ask you about, I know you talked to him about the uh, the process of how these videos get up, get up on these sites in the first place, right? And when you've got you got sort of uh, banned content or disturbing content. How does how do these apps go about dealing with that? Well, absolutely. Uh, you sort of heard Jesse talk about it earlier. The algorithm for TikTok uh, it's it's a very automated system. So I wanted his input as to whether or not these app developers can create a better, less automated system in reviewing and remo- uh, reviewing and removing the explicit content that will not only pop up today but also for tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and keep in mind, there as much as it's automated, there is still people who sit behind desks and watch flag content, but it has to get to a certain level. Uh, Facebook, which owns Instagram, Twitter, uh, Snapchat, TikTok, they all have individuals who are in their safety and trust teams. And those people, once they see a video has been flagged a number of times by users, literally have to sit down with human eyes and view it and determine whether or not it violates a website's terms of service or explicit content. Now, you have to keep in mind, if you have a company that has, let's say, 20,000 people around the world whose job it is to watch explicit content that's being flagged, you have to also factor in trauma. You have to factor in counseling. You have to factor in that these are human beings who daily are seeing the most explicit, horrifying content that we can ever imagine. Now, realistically, we don't want those people having to do those jobs, but I'm glad that they're doing it because they help keep unwanted content off of the open internet. But realistically, at the end of the day, there is so much on the deep web that most of us would never even fathom. Um, Somebody has to do that job. So the algorithms themselves, once the video gets flagged enough times, that's a really good artificial intelligence that's designed to mitigate some of those risks for human beings who are just trying to do their job. But at some point, you do need human eyes, and that's where these companies do have a social responsibility to not only have people in place, but support those people to make sure that they are not only getting uh, treatment for you know the mental health that they go through and seeing that kind of content, but at the end of the day, also just being um, being treated as if they their job it brings value. And unfortunately, what we see in the past, Facebook um, you know will pay these people bare minimum. At the end of the day, they're not really making a good living. And unfortunately, they're sitting down looking at explosive content and not getting mental health support that they need. 
Okay, horrible story, disturbing stuff, John. I didn't know about this video up on TikTok. I don't think my kids are using it. I know they're not actually that particular app, but uh, that's great. man, yeah. it's good, good to know. Good, good information to parents to know that that's out there. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mike.